When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. Week 52 of the Silver Bowl Market. It seems like I'm always doing these on a Friday, which I am, but it doesn't always feel like a bull market, right? With silver and gold down a fair bit today. Uh, last time I checked, gold around 1480, which, in all things considered, if you look a year in the past, would be happy to be around, what, 1280 at that point. Uh, so still a fair bit off of the bottom. Same thing goes for silver. I mean, the bottom a year ago this week was you know below $14 an ounce, and, and now we're talking in the 17 at, at some points even been in the $18 range. So all things considered, not in that bad a position. And, and I think that there's a lot of factors that are coming into play here in the markets that if anything are are very bullish for precious metals, whether it's geopolitical, or uh, monetary policy, and of course, economic, uh, the, the economy here in the United States and, and elsewhere, uh, it's bullish. So I want to start off with geopolitics. You know, there's two big ones that, that come to mind. Surprise, surprise, they revolve around the Middle East. Uh, I'm going to refrain from talking too much about the China situation and the trade deal and all that because... How many times have I come on here and said that all these rumors matter very little? And and have I been wrong so far? No. I mean, how many headlines? We've seen like hundreds of headlines over the past 18 plus months about this trade deal uh, coming to fruition. And and we're still far, far away from that. So, no, I <laughs> my opinion has changed very little with that. And yet, we do have some other geopolitical things to talk about here. First of all, news this morning of a attack on an Iranian oil tanker in the Gulf of, uh, what is it, uh, the, you know, north of the Strait of Hormuz, I guess, um, the Persian Gulf, which is a big deal. Uh, now, Saudi Arabia denied responsibility of it, but, but when it comes down to it, I mean, there's only so many culprits here that, that could have carried that, uh, that attack out, and, and in this case, I, I tend to doubt that Iran carried it out. You know, we don't want to rule out a false flag. Uh, but ultimately, you primarily have two culprits. It's, it's either Saudi Arabia or Israel. I mean, you know, with, with Iran and potential Iranian attacks on Saudi Arabia uh, or, or in Yemen, you, you have other potential culprits. You have the Houthi rebels. You have potential proxy forces in Iraq and and you have those actors come into play, um, but an attack on an Iranian tanker likely are one of those two forces. I mean, yeah, it could be the U.S. I tend to see that as a little bit less likely. One of those two choices. And so, either way, I mean, it's 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 an attack of aggression against Iran. And, and do I expect this to be something that Iran is going to go ballistic, both literally and figuratively, over? No, I mean, it's not on Iranian soil or anything. Um, but it is an Iranian flagged or an Iranian tanker. 
And so I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, in the coming days, even over the weekend, a retaliation for this. I don't know what that's going to look like. Another uh, an attack on, on Saudi Arabia by the Houthi rebels, which have been kicking butt, actually, in Saudi Arabia over the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, it could be from Iran themselves. It could be seizing a tanker. It could be sinking a tanker or launching missiles at a tanker. You know that Iran has very advanced cruise missiles and anti-ship missiles. So all of those things are, are coming into play here. And, of course, metals didn't move a whole lot on this news. I mean, if anything, they've been down in the last 24 hours. Uh, but but it is, I think, very significant news. And, and if things uh, escalate in the Middle East and, and the Persian Gulf, which I expect they will, because again, just like the Chinese deal, I don't see any deal coming to fruition anytime soon. Uh, that's obviously going to be very bullish for precious metals. Sadly, I mean, it's, it, it's sad that, that that's what it takes sometimes for metals to go up, a major geopolitical conflict. But that seems to be where things are still heading. And, you know, to add to the this complicated mess that is the Middle East, which I, I don't want to make this sound like it's somehow recent that it's been a complicated mess. It has been for decades. We also have... Uh, the the uh, Turkish invasion into uh, Syria, which uh, I have mixed feelings about. Not a fan of Turkey. No, not a fan of Erdogan. Not a fan of their government. And 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 it's it's unfortunate that that the real big losers in this are the the Kurds. You know the the ethnic group that that populates, you know, northern Syria, Iraq, southern Turkey, I think parts of Iran, maybe another country, uh, which, you know, the Kurds have been instrumental, have been instrumental in the downfall of ISIS. Yeah, the U.S. played a role, so did Russia and Syria and, and uh, you know, SDF and whatever, but, but the Kurds, I mean, it, it, I almost feel like at some point they deserve their own Kurdistan. Now, that's not something that the Syrians... The Iraqis probably, uh, the the Turks, even the U.S. would would probably allow. But at some point, it feels like they deserve it. Now, with that being said, this is where the mixed feelings come into play here. I don't think that that means that we should stay in the area just to fight off the Turks. I think Trump made the right decision to get out of Syria or to, to further remove our influence from the region. That's the right choice because, yeah... It sounds great on paper to help the Kurds out. And if you hear a bit of white noise, that's just a bit of rain on the windshield. Uh, it, it sounds great on paper, but all of a sudden, you know, that, that it doesn't take that much for all of a sudden for us to be in the Middle East or Syria for another couple of years. Plus, you know, if we were to, to stay there to, to prevent Turkish influence from, from uh, Turkey from basically invading the area, well, that, that raises a possibility of some confrontation between the U.S. And, and Turkey and Syria and Russia and Kurds, and it just gets complicated. It's something that the U.S. has to just get out of. I get, I, I feel for the Kurds. Not to say that they're the good guys, but, but you know, it they get bullied around a lot, and, and that's really unfortunate. But that doesn't mean that the U.S. has to be the people that stand up for these people every single time. I mean, we've rarely does that end well. On paper, it sounds great, but we have so many real-world examples of that just going terribly, terribly wrong. But again, I think that this Turkish invasion uh, into uh, what the Idlib province is is very significant. Something to follow. Uh, something that could further 
escalate the region, especially you know with that player in the region that I already mentioned, Israel, and and the potential for for them to go to war with with what they would consider their enemies, Iran, the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard, I forget uh, IRGC or whatever it's called, uh, Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, all of that kind of comes into play here and. and you know, I, I'm still anticipating Israel getting into a major conflict with them in the not-so-far-off future. Of course, with some of their recent internal politics, that could change with, with Netanyahu, certainly, and, and his uh, party and coalition certainly losing, losing quite a bit of, of support in their recent elections. Uh, moving on from the, the talk of, of geopolitics, I want to talk about monetary policy because there's been a bit of a groundbreaking announcement this week regarding quantitative easing further easing by the fed and and it shouldn't come as any surprise that that we're here that quantitative easing which yes uh powell now infamously referred to as not qe even though it definitely is qe quantitative easing i mean it's ridiculous okay so so there's a kind of this this argument is it qe or is it not qe and it wasn't so long ago that I think a lot of people were having the same argument about whether or not QE was really money printing, right? And so now we've we've gotten to kind of another whole a whole other level of this battle over definitions. Was this QE or not? Let's just bring this back to, to the conversation of is this money printing or not? And and of course the answer is yes. Just like QE was was money printing. Yeah, it's not the same as money printing and giving it straight to the government, but it's it's monetization of debt. It is. And and that's what this QE is, right? This is, you know, we already had QE light beginning a few weeks ago with uh, the Fed's repo operations with their, with their uh, you know, however much it was, it's $75 billion a day plus the two-week repo operation, which is going to be expiring actually pretty soon here. But that was QE light. I mean, it was more or less sort of a permanent, quasi-permanent expansion of the, the Fed's balance sheet, even if it was just on an overnight basis, is on a rolling overnight basis. But now we have the Fed purchasing $60 billion a month of Treasury bills, which I think is going to help a, a ton, you know, after a couple months with this dollar shortage. I don't think it's ultimately going to be enough. It's not like this is going to fix the federal government's funding problems long term or anything but 60 billion a month that's that's 720 billion a year i'd be surprised to see that number decrease ever i mean it's sort of like once the once this the cat's out of the bag in terms of this quantitative easing which i think is eventually going to turn into qe infinity uh, permanent monetization of debt, permanent expansion of the Fed balance sheet that, that far will far outpace any permanent expansion of the Fed balance sheet uh, you know, prior to the, the other round of uh, first three rounds of quantitative easing. Uh, once the cat's out of the bag, I mean, I don't see any going back. <laughs> this is just going to go from 60 to 80 to 100 to 200, whatever it takes to provide liquidity to the system, to bring down interest rates, and, and ultimately to fund the U.S. government. I mean, how many times have I come on here and, and sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm beating a dead horse, uh, preaching to the choir with how many times I repeat myself, but there's always this question that people bring up, how high will the U.S. debt go? 
And of course, the sky's the limit. It, if you talk to somebody 20 years ago and you said, yeah, the, the debt's going to be at 20, what, 22 trillion, you know, 20 years from now, some people would have said, yeah, that's that's about what, what I would think it would be at. But other people would say, there's no way the debt's going to get that high. Where is that money going to come from? The sky's the limit. But, but the big question we have to ask is who's going to buy all that debt? You know, we're, we're on a trillion plus a year deficit here in the U.S., that means somebody's got to buy a trillion dollar plus worth of, of treasury bonds and bills. And the market only can support that for so long. Right? Foreign buyers, the Chinese government, the Japanese, uh, domestic investors, pension funds, even the U.S. government buying their own debt. You know, that only can go on for so long. At some point, either prices have to fall or you're going to have somebody else come into the market and buy it. And, of course, that's the Fed, right? So $60 billion worth of bills in this so-called not quantitative easing plan, it's not going to be enough. You know, $720 billion a year, it's not going to be enough. Eventually, the Fed is going to get into the business of buying longer-dated bonds as well. And and eventually, we're going to see this increase to 100, 100 I mean, right now, $720 billion sounds like a lot on a yearly basis. That's a good chunk of the U.S. deficit, but that U.S. deficit is only going to continue to increase. And if we are indeed on the cusp of a, of a recession, that's going to explode. I'm talking one and a half, two, two. I mean, it's not that inconceivable to get two, two and a half, three trillion dollar deficits by you know the next fiscal year. Three trillion just between increased spending and decreased tax receipts. Right? I mean, what happens when, when the stock market doesn't go up? What happens when it enters a bear market and now all of a sudden there's a huge amount of people that are no longer claiming uh, uh, you know, capital, uh, or not capital, but um, you know, profits basically from the stock market on their taxes, capital gains. All of a sudden that massive source of funding goes away. Right? And what happens when all of a sudden unemployment spikes and then you have all these other... Uh, uh, you know, property prices fall, and you have all these other uh, problems come into the fray that are going to decrease revenue, and then you have a ton of bailouts of corporations, of government agencies, of states, of cities, of pension plans that are going to bloat these budgets, you know, throw in a foreign conflict or two into that, and yeah, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to get to two, three trillion dollars, and, and then it's off to the races from there. Right? And so all of a sudden, you have a ton more debt that you have to monetize in a time in which you might have investors shine away from that. Why? Well, inflation, right? If you have the Fed all of a sudden monetizing debt at a faster and faster rate, and, and people get the message that this is for good, this QE is going to go on forever, and the Fed's just going to keep printing money to fund the government, essentially, you know, modern monetary policy, you have high amounts of inflation. And all of a sudden... Inflation is far outpacing whatever the Fed is choosing to try and keep uh, the bond yields at. And, and bonds all of a sudden don't look attractive, right? Because all of a sudden it's no longer a zero or slightly negative real yield when you count for inflation, but negative two, three, four percent, or, or even more than that, right? And then at some point yields will rise. And, and the funding cost for the U.S. government just to fund that debt is going to, to spike much higher, Right. And so this is all extremely bullish for precious metals. It's playing out not unlike how, how myself and so many others have predicted, 
right, QE by the end of the year. Heck, I think a lot of people, was it Bank of America or Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, I forget, that, that had predicted by November. And here we are in like the first or second week of October, and we're at QE. But but again, the cat's out of the bag. This is going to provide maybe some short-term support for, uh, you know, the dollar uh, liquidity crisis. Uh, but but long-term, this isn't going to solve this problem. This is just going to require more and more stimulus, more and more liquidity, more and more money printing as these, uh, you know, fiat Ponzi schemes eventually do. Uh, finally, I, I want to talk some about the uh, precious metals once again. Because that's you know overarching kind of been a theme of this of this podcast geopolitics monetary policy all of that, uh, but again, the current price you know I wouldn't be surprised you know if markets continue to rise if we get a couple of good headlines over the weekend or or things cool down in the Middle East if we saw precious metals fall more than where they are, but but I do think gold continues to find pretty pretty positive support around that fourteen eighty level. And it found it once again today. And so, of course, this is subject to change by the end of the day. But if it can close a week above 1480, 1483, 1490 in that area, then, then that's positive. And I think that's going to be a good launching pad uh, for precious metals heading into next week. Uh, you know, as always, you know, not as always, I shouldn't say that. But, but as it's been the case for quite a while now, uh, silver I still see as a much, much better buy than gold given the current ratio um, I think silver is going to rise by by a far greater percentage than the silver is going to rise by a far greater percentage than gold in the future here and so obviously don't take this as investment advice but these prices all things considered you know this this big rally that that occurred for you know the second half of the summer it's obviously cooled off and these are, are I think pretty decent prices to continue to stack at especially silver that's my own take on it. Don't take it as investment advice, but I see these as affordable prices, and I see it as pretty uh, risky to to wait out on prices dropping significantly from here. In fact, I had somebody comment on a fairly old video now, talking about you know these individuals. In that video, I was talking about these individuals, uh, even here on YouTube, uh, that were were holding out on much much lower prices. You know, a thousand dollars for gold or twelve dollars for silver and, and and don't get me wrong i'm pretty sure they already had a pretty decent position in silver and gold but i was kind of saying along the way that like hey i could be wrong prices could drop to that level but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be stacking at this price and hey i could still be wrong they could still make it down to that level but i i still see it as, as extremely unlikely uh and so i don't know we can pat ourselves on the back i guess for that call not that it was a super duper bold call to say that gold wasn't going to drop another hundred and fifty dollars from where it was at the time, um, but hey, for silver, you know, sub twenty still seems like a pretty good price to stack at, considering it, you know the long term implications of, of everything we've talked about here today, and we haven't even scratched the surface of, of silver supply and demand. Something I'd like to to get back to again in some future videos, future podcasts. So, as always. Once again, thank you guys for all of your support. Quick reminder, if you are looking to support me on Patreon, I am doing a once-weekly podcast exclusive to my patrons, patrons over on Patreon. You know, I'm not saying support me solely because of that. I hope you guys just support me because you get some real value from, from everything I put up here on YouTube and, and in the podcast world. But 
I do so much appreciate those that have chosen to help me through that, especially as as YouTube views or even YouTube ad revenue uh, has been less than what has been in the past. You know, ideally, I would like to be independent of that altogether. Let's let's get rid of ad revenue and 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 just get support from you know affiliate sponsors such as SD, as such as SD Bullion, and just from my from my audience, right? Um, so every bit helps as little as a dollar a month. You know, we're talking a, a cheap small coffee from a gas station for a dollar or, or what a Coke from McDonald's that helps me out a ton. You know, when you take into, take into consideration just how many, uh, potential supporters I have in my, uh, audience right now, listening at this time. So of course I don't ask anything of you and I'm happy to have you guys here watching the first place, but I do appreciate that very much. If anybody would want to support me because of the value that I provide, as always though, thank you every one of you from the bottom of my heart for watching this video, listening to this podcast, and God bless.